right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Collectively Speaking, brought to you by Ujima, the National Center on Violence Against Women in the Black Community. My name is Whitney, and I am your host today for this episode of Collectively Speaking, where we're going to be talking about black love in the black community. So all month long, we've been doing um, this amazing campaign around black love and how we love, um, how we love on one another, how we love um, outside communities. So we want to continue with this amazing podcast. I'm here with our special guest, Dr. Justin Hopkins. Um, he's going to be sharing some great information with us. Welcome, Dr. Hopkins. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here, and I can't wait to get into our topic today. Absolutely. Um, so before we get started, just a few updates. We are going to have a Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month Twitter chat, which will be on February 21st, which is a Friday from 3 to 4. We welcome everyone to join you. You want to follow us on social media to get more information at Ujima Community. Um, that's on all platforms, Facebook. Instagram and Twitter so uh, let's get in our conversation all right Um, so like I said we have Dr. Hopkins here and let me just give you guys a little background on Dr. Hopkins Um, he is a licensed clinical psychologist in the uh, District of Columbia here in Washington DC he specializes in providing psychotherapy for adolescents adults and couples and he works with a wide uh, uh, an array of he works with a wide array of concerns including mood and anxiety issues trauma specializing in styles relation person sorry personal personality styles relationships and um familial issues is that correct that's correct (laughs) (laughs) it's a mouthful um he has also worked um specializing with uh gender racial and sexual identity related oppression and also has seen patients develop more compassion for themselves and others, communicate more effectively and with their loved ones, and gain meaningful insight into their most painful experiences. So, Dr. Hopkins, if you don't mind, if I missed anything, would you mind giving <laughs> us a little bit more about your background and what you did? Yeah, sure. And thank you for, for reading my very wordy uh, bio okay. very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate that. I think you, you pretty much captured it. Um, you know, I, I really enjoy practicing psychotherapy. I I think it's an incredibly useful tool to help people cope with the difficulties of life. And, you know, life is difficult for everyone, right? And sometimes there are particular difficulties that keep us stuck, that overwhelm us, that stress us out, that impact our health. And and so it's so important that we all have a space where we can talk through things because we, you know, our experiences are complicated and putting words to things helps us to get some liberation from the things that bind us. Mm -hmm. So I... um. I really, truly believe in that, and I and I really enjoy uh, being a psychologist and, and practicing psychotherapy. Yeah, because like I mentioned earlier, you're kind of like a rare breed <laughs> in your line of work. When we right. find um, black men who work in the field of mental health, right. Um, right. we try to grab onto them because we get so many requests in our office mm. around um, – since Ujima works around domestic, sexual, and community mm. violence, we get a lot of calls around, say, men who are looking for, uh, you know, therapy, mm-hmm. and they want a male therapist, and we're like, well, yeah, let us take, you know, give us a minute, let us, you know, let us look them up. So right. um, it's great to know that you're in this area and that we can definitely, you know, refer those calls to you if possible. Yeah, and you know. Um I'm I'm proud to be a black male and also a therapist, and yet I wish there were, there are many more, mm-hmm. you know. And it's it's unfortunate that there aren't. Um, but I think, you know, I think 
men, we tend to, maybe I'm getting into our topic but a little bit, but I think we tend to be socialized in a way to not um, be as introspective about how we feel mm-hmm. and sometimes even how we think. And so um, this field of mental health, I think, is foreign uh, to the men who are, who are socialized in that way, you know. Uh, this is... I love this field because it's just there's there's so much to think about, so much to consider, so much to imagine um, when we really think about how our life impacts us over our lifespan, mm-hmm. how our early experiences are with us, even though we may not be consciously aware of them. Right? right. But there has to be an openness to your own experience, an openness to your vulnerabilities, the sides that are hurt, the sides that are challenging. Right. And I think, you know. Men, we typically, um, we tend to have a lot of trouble in that area, you know. So I think on one hand, uh, it's hard for us to kind of embrace the field sometimes. And on the other hand, um, it's our own socialization Mm -hmm. that uh, makes it hard for us to think about our own mental health. Right. Yep. So I'm going to move a little bit backwards since you did bring that up around, you know, um, how black men seek um, mental health guidance. So why... what are some of the reasons you think why um, it's so difficult for not just black community, but black men in particular to seek um, help when it comes to their mental health? Yeah, you know, it's um, there's a lot of shame. We are socialized with a lot of shame. And, um, you know, I, I think one, one thing that I've that I always uh, I kind of talk about sometimes when I'm when I'm giving talks around like gender, particularly in the black community, is how. Um, Patriarchy really hurts both genders, right? It, it's awful and terrible to women, and it's awful, and it's also um, inhumane to men in the sense that, right? It it's basically founded on this like misogynistic idea that men are the superior race, and because we're the superior race, like we don't we don't have things like emotions, right? We don't we don't get sad, we aren't vulnerable, right? We relegate all of those things in this very sexist way to women, right? And yet we are human. Mm-hmm. Men are human, mm-hmm. and that means you feel, right? That's a part of what it means to exist as a human. If you're alive, then you have feelings. To feel is to exist, and we don't control what it is that we feel. We can only um, we can only become more mindful of things that we feel and choose how we express it. But we don't have a choice with whether we feel or not. So most men live in this paradox where they kind of disregard a lot of the things that they feel. But um, because under this guise that men aren't supposed to do that, and that's a superior way of existing, all the while we are human, right? So there's this disavow of our own humanity. And where we don't actually get our emotional needs met, we aren't actually self-aware, we aren't actually um, being nourished, we aren't actually allowing ourselves to be uh, to feel intimacy on a deep level, right? There's so many things that we block ourselves from actually enjoying when it comes to the fullness of life. And part of it has to do with this mentality of what it means to be a man and how patriarchy positions the identity of men. And so um, with, with that being said, right, um, and just to backtrack a little bit more to, to say more about feelings, I do think feelings can, are stigmatized in general, but specifically with men. And the reality is, you know, feelings are, are information. <clears throat> yeah. That's what they are. Yeah. They're, they're valuable information about our subjective experience. And it's complicated because our minds are complicated. <clears throat> so we don't always necessarily know why it is that we feel the way that we feel. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what, how therapy can be helpful because we start putting things together. We understand a little bit better. But 
if we really take our time, right, feelings do make sense. If we really process and unpack things, feelings do make sense. We just don't always do that in our day-to-day life. So if you think about it, though, when you're not in touch with what it is that you feel because your identity dictates that, that, that you're not allowed to or you shouldn't be, then there's a whole lot of information, rich information about your own experience that that you do not actually have access to. That can lead to um, self-denial, that can lead to self-esteem issues, depression, issues in relationships, communication, trouble, right? Because you're communicating from an uninformed position about your own kind of feelings, the actual thing that could be bothering you, right? So many things can become more challenging. So I think for black men, you know, there's a lot of things for us, um, a lot of hurdles for us to kind of jump over and things for us to fight off, um, in order to allow ourselves to be open enough to be fully human and to to embrace the side of us that society has told us we're not allowed to have, mm-hmm. either by racial oppression or by um, this uh, the way that patriarchy frames male identity and the way that we've kind of embraced that toxic form of identity. There's just a lot of things for us to kind of fight through in order to be open enough to our own mental health. Sure, absolutely. So in the line of work that you do when working with um, black couples, what have been some of those issues that have come to the table when it comes to a black man trying to share his love experience and say his partner is not receiving that information? Sure. Um, that's a really good question. <clears throat> I think I think a lot of times, well, just, just broadly in couples therapy, right? A lot of people come to couples therapy wanting a referee and, <laughs> and wanting the therapist to say, like, who's right and who's wrong, mm-hmm. right? And really the work is about getting to a deeper understanding of why it is there are upsetting things that are happening between you and you're not able to resolve it. Um, so that's kind of getting to the deeper um, emotional experience that's happening when there are arguments. And in order to do that, you have to be willing to like listen to one another. Mm-hmm. There are barriers to the listening, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly for men, right? If you're not in touch with what it is that you feel in your own experiences, then it's it's hard to see the value. It can be hard to see the value and slowing down to reflect on one's own experience, right? If you're used to kind of not... Um, ignoring what it is that you feel and pushing it to the side, disregarding your wants and needs, um, then it's it's it can be challenging to kind of hear your partner's needs, right? To hear how your partner feels and understand the weight of that because you may not understand um, the weight of it for yourself. So I, I can see that on both sides. I, I think the other thing is that, you know, sometimes there are, just to throw out a couple of stereotypes, obviously this, isn't, this doesn't apply to every sure. man or woman or couple by, by any means whatsoever, but right in heterosexual relationships when um, sometimes there can be a guy who is a little bit more open to his own experiences and able to kind of communicate what it is that he feels, but... Uh, the woman, because she has a particular understanding of how men are supposed to be, is not necessarily open to how the man um, is feeling, right? It's not able to kind of take that in because it doesn't register for her that this actually bears weight Mm -hmm. for him um, because that's not what men do, right? Right. They don't feel, they aren't aren't vulnerable, right? All of those like toxic tropes. So uh, you can see it kind of go both ways where one partner isn't really understanding the the um, emotional depth of either themselves or the other and and both become really challenging Mm -hmm. okay um so so going back to 
I want to kind of single out black men here because we talk a lot about black women and their feelings and their mm-hmm. emotions, but we don't really get down to the nitty gritty of some of that um, trauma that is there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I had a conversation yesterday and a group, we were talking about how, you know, um, black men may grow up in a talk in a space where there's a, excuse me, there's a toxic woman. So we were talking about their mom or their sister or, mm-hmm. you know, and then as they become men, um, they grow mm-hmm. up and take that anger out on their partner, mm-hmm. you know, and not not on purpose, but, mm-hmm. you know, they haven't had a chance to kind of be open and discuss that. Mm-hmm. So initially, um, when we talked about domestic violence, um, I wanted to get into um, about how domestic violence affects black men and mm-hmm. um, both as a both as the predator and both as a survivor. Yeah. Um, because it, it's both sides. You have men right. who are abused um, and then they become abused. And then you have men who were abused and maybe became the predator. Right. Um, so can you kind of yeah. discuss that a little bit? Yeah, sure, sure. I, I think that's a, um, like that's that's a good example uh, that you initially like mentioned, like how uh, some men may grow up in, in a house with a toxic uh, mother figure or sister figure or aunt figure um, or just someone toxic in their vicinity mm-hmm. regardless of who the of, of the gender or who it is right and um, I think so one one idea uh, that is um, that is often used to understand domestic violence is attachment theory mm-hmm. uh, it's basically just a theory of different categories of how people attach to a person that that they love, right? And that attachment can change over a lifespan, or you can have different attachments with different people. Um, but for men who are abusive, sometimes there is someone who maybe left or abandoned them or mistreated them some way, right? And then um, behind their anger, which they take out on their partners, behind the violence, behind all of the aggression, there's also there's often a very fearful and insecure person. Mm-hmm. They have a yeah. lot of anxiety and fear of their partner leaving, mm-hmm. rejecting them, belittling them, or mis- or uh, somehow mistreating them in a similar way that they have been treated earlier in life, mm-hmm. or you know abandoned earlier in life. And so they manage that fear and anxiety through a pathological level of control and aggression. And if you think about it, that fear itself, right? If this is a man who does ascribe to some of those more toxic forms of masculinity that say you're not allowed to feel fear, you're not allowed to like be afraid, um, right? The fear itself can make them feel insecure, right? And mm-hmm. so they're not only angry at the uh, their partner, but also angry at themselves for feeling the way that they do, right. and then take that out on their partner um, through through violence and aggression. So I think that's one way in which perpetrators can often um often become right abusers in their relationships and it's a cycle that repeats because every time that anxiety raises up every time they have any thought it can just be an internal thought right a spontaneous thought that maybe this person is going to leave me and right and their anxiety spikes and in order to manage that anxiety they they hit their partner they Mm -hmm. abuse their partner right and so they their partner becomes the um the only connection that they have to managing that fear mm-hmm. right and so the part they use the partner over and over and over in order to manage it in that abusive fashion um 
I think uh, the other the other part is you asked is what about men um, and being survivors of abuse, survivors of domestic violence, uh, and I think. Uh, um, the, f- the first thing that came to mind is shame, mm-hmm. the word shame. Mm-hmm. Shame really does kill. It really, really does. Because then it's different from guilt, right? Guilt says, um, I've done a bad thing. Shame says, I am a bad person. And uh, for anyone who is a survivor of domestic violence mm-hmm. and abuse and who was in that experience for a prolonged duration, will start to feel like they are the, they are the bad person. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the the transfer of of uh, of trauma. Right. When when you are abused, you kind of kind of you kind of like take in and internalize that experience as defining who you are in some way. Right. Mm-hmm. And we and we do that with our with it, with all experiences, but with trauma because it's so annihilating because it's so overwhelming. Right. It has such a uh, a larger effect. So I think. For those who survive abuse, a lot of times it's it's trying to to work through all of the gaslighting, all of the negative self-talk that comes from being a, a victim of abuse, and um, being able to kind of shed that sense of shame that you you know you aren't bad just because someone treated you that bad, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You aren't an awful person just because someone treated you like an awful person, mm-hmm. right? And it's really it can be really hard to separate that when your experience is so visceral. So I think that's one of the challenges of for men and women, but specifically for men, right? That shame and that pride can be so can so um large and so that's that's a tough thing i think to overcome yeah and and as a therapist how do you work with these men to kind of get them to Mm -hmm. um to identify the abuse or the fact that they are an abuser and then how do you work through that with them well for for those who've experienced abuse um you know actually i i think the the process is similar in some ways and some really broad broad strokes right and i want to say here right um we know that most abusers right uh have been abused Mm -hmm. right most abusers have had some trauma in their life right but that doesn't excuse them right as cliche as cliche as it sounds right we know that hurt people do hurt people and it's documented even that right um uh sociopathy right people who deal with with um, sociopathic tendencies, mm-hmm. right? Serial killers even have mm-hmm. traumatic relationships, yes. right? With their, with the people who care about them uh, earlier in life or are supposed to care about them, right? Yet that doesn't excuse the choices that they make as adults. And so no trauma justifies another trauma, right? And we, we've got to be clear about that. And so I think there's a way in which we can respond to each trauma without justifying or excusing the one before it, mm-hmm. right? We can hold people accountable accountable by giving them reasonable consequences for the things that they uh, do that are that are heinous and impact other people in a negative way with that being said I think in um, oh and part of holding them accountable I think is making sure they get adequate treatment mm-hmm. right making sure that they are they are thoroughly addressing right the things that led them to do what they did so for those who are abusers I think it's um, helping them to really understand um what the like the underlying mechanics of the abuse right 
right? Mm-hmm. This cycle of managing their own internal dialogue and emotions that they take out on their partner through abuse, mm-hmm. right? That whether it's that fear of abandonment, that anxiety of being rejected or losing someone, that they then manifest into this aggressive and pathological level of control over the other person, right? Or if it's getting in touch with their with the traumas that they've experienced in their life and understanding deeply how and why it is they have manifested their own kind of um their own internal experience where they then take that out on somebody else Mm -hmm. right and helping them to make other choices so i think it's helping them to better connect with their own experience their own narrative of how and why they became an abuser the trauma in their own life and understanding the the magnitude of what it is that they're doing to the other person when they abuse and then for those who are survivors right it's it's helping them to shed all of the um, really um, self-defeating kind of thinking and uh, emotional baggage that comes with surviving trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, being able to accept that uh, what happened to them did not happen to them because of them, right? And to also kind of be able to help them to learn to trust themselves again so they can pick up on red flags, so they can kind of listen to their own emotions, so that they can know like when situations are uncomfortable and know that that feeling is true and right for them, right? So I think it's just helping them to become more attuned to themselves. And for both parties, you have to provide an open space for them so they can talk. Right, yep. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely. totally agree. Um, so let's let's move into black people as a whole okay. in our mental health. Sure. Um, so my question for you is, um, what are some common misconceptions and myths uh, you often have to debunk when in regards to black mental health? Ooh, I love this question. <laughs> yeah, I was. Um, this is a good one because I, I get I get a lot of. Uh, uh, you know, there's there's like the little stuff, right? When and I share that I'm a psychologist, right? In DC, a lot of people ask like, "What do you do?" Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, she's like, "Hey, I'm a psychologist." Like, I don't really share that that often anymore because usually like, it's like, "Oh, are you trying to read my mind?" Yeah. Like, "Oh, yeah. are you like <laughs> what? Like, are you analyzing me?" And a lot of times I say something like, "Well." I mean, I'm off the clock, right? Like, I'm out of the office. Like, I don't like working when I'm out of the office uh-huh. either. Like, no one does, right? But um, there are a lot of myths around uh, mental health and black mental health. Well, and in, in just in general, right, two that I, that, um, that come to mind is that sometimes people say mental health doesn't apply to me or I don't need therapy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, to that, I would say, like, if you have a mind, you have mental health, right? You have a body, you have physical health, you have a mind, you have mental health. Um, and... Mental health issues are very common, right? And, um, in 2017, one in five Americans uh, had a diagnosable mental health issue, right? Mm-hmm. And those are, the, those are the issues that rise to the level of being diagnosed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's, uh, we, we all have difficult things that we deal with in life, and therapy can be incredibly helpful for dealing with them. So therapy applies to everyone, and you don't have to have an issue in order to get therapy. Right. You don't have to have an identified issue. You can come to learn about yourself, to grow as a human, and to just manage your mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, the other myth, oh, this is one of my favorite ones, is that um, just the idea that mental health and physical health are separate. They really, 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 really are not, mm-hmm. right? Um, stress activates the immune system. Uh, the immune system turns on inflammation. And that causes chronic illness, right? Um, 
just read a couple a couple of stats, right? Uh, chronic stress is linked to the six leading causes of death, right? That's heart disease, cancer, lung ailments, accidents, cirrhosis of the liver, and suicide. And more than 75% of all physician office visits are actually linked to stress-related complaints. Mm -hmm. So there really isn't much difference between mental health and physical health. And what I mean by that is that they are intimately intertwined. We know that people who are diagnosed with real, with terminal illnesses do better when their mood is in a better place, Mm -hmm. right? We know that, um, uh, our, our brain, right? There's a nerve at the base of our brain called the vagus nerve, uh, that connects to the pit of our stomach and, um, it communicates back and forth. That's why people say like, trust your gut, you mm-hmm. know, that gut feeling. <laughs> uh-huh. There is like a, phys- there is a physiological structure that okay. actually like uh, makes that up, right? And so when you're getting nauseous before like you publicly speak, mm-hmm. uh, or if you're getting, you know, if your stomach starts to rumble, right? Like before you're doing something that's nerve wracking, right? Your body is communicating something and you're also thinking at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one myth that, um, I, I want to bust, right? Mm-hmm. And that I, that I often talk about is just how intertwined our mental functioning is with our physical health. Mm-hmm. And we got, we've got to start looking at, looking at ourselves more holistically and understanding that, you know, we're, we're complex and we have to take care of all of us. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the fact that um, this quote unquote, something has to be wrong with you yeah. in order for you to seek mental health. Because personally for me, um, living in the DC area, we're under a lot of pressure and under a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. And even though this podcast is national, our our issues here may be totally different from someone that lives in, you know, a small town in Utah or mm-hmm. um, totally different from someone who lives in New York, someone who lives in L.A. Mm-hmm. So I say that to say um, a lot of people I know are dealing with, say, anxiety issues, yeah. you know, and it's not because yeah. there's something wrong, but, you know, it's the act of getting up, going to work, mm-hmm. getting in traffic. Um, then when you got to get to work, people are coming at you with a whole bunch of questions. Mm-hmm. I know um, one of our managers at work, she has this thing like, give people 10, 15 minutes before you, you know, when they walk through the door, before mm-hmm. you have a bunch of questions to ask, because you don't know what they were dealing with out there in the world. You know, and I, I think we live in this um, society where we want instant gratification. We want people to always be available to us. And sometimes mm-hmm. mentally, you're not available to mm-hmm. people. Right. You right. know, so I'm glad that you said that yeah. sometimes you just need to sit down and unpack with someone. Yeah. And, you know, on, and on top of all of that, right, um, for for black folks, right, we've got all of the all of the things that everyone contends with in the world mm-hmm. on top of that also being black being right. black and white spaces uh having to to code switch feeling the pressure of our society to kind of live up to certain standards that are unfair and unjust right that pressure um a lot of us grew up with the adage you got to be twice as good to get um, half as far right mm-hmm. and there's <clears throat> and there's even statistics to 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 back that we know that black quarterbacks in the NFL for example are benched twice as fast mm-hmm. regardless of their statistics right. and a lot of times they had a, they had higher performance but um, they were still benched twice as fast and that happens in other industries as well I just happen to be a football fan <laughs> <laughs> but um, right there there's a lot of pressure to being uh, to being black and to dealing with the the stress of oppression lurking around the corner especially when you're trying to um, do well when you're trying to um, do well in your career, do well uh, 
in, in the public, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's um that's another part of black mental health that we have to be mindful of. And and just quickly, you've said this a couple times, code switching. Yeah. Now, for some of our listeners who don't know what that is and what that means, can you kind of briefly explain? What sure, that is? sure, sure. Yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, so so code switching in. You know what? It's funny. I think even if you don't know what it is, you probably do it automatically without even thinking. Right. Right. It's it's a survival mechanism is what it is. And sometimes you're conscious of it. Sometimes you're not. Mm-hmm. Right. But basically, it's this idea that you literally carry yourself. Um, that's your language, um, your verbal language, your body language, your uh, <clears throat> including like your tone of voice, like the words that you choose. Right. Um, and how you posture yourself. They switch depending on the environment that you're in and the people that you're around. Mm-hmm. And particularly for, for black folks, people of color, when we are um, in predominantly white spaces, we tend to switch out of what is a more natural, authentic, <clears throat> organic form of communicating and carrying ourselves into something that we imagine is going to be more presentable and acceptable in that and in that environment. W.E.B. Du Bois talked about double consciousness, mm-hmm. right? This idea of being conscious of oneself as a human, as a black person, and then also being conscious of how the white majority is going to view you and then treat you right. in light of their view, right? Is that reality that we know that as black men that we are typically experienced as, uh, as inciting fear, right? Like we, we um, a lot of times, like white folks have a fear response to black black men, mm-hmm. right? And so black men then carry that mindful that we could make some white folks uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? And so in certain situations, we switch in order to protect ourselves. The unfortunate thing, though, is that some of those sometimes in the service of protecting us, we're also kind of catering to those prejudices and carrying that on us like that's part of the weight of oppression as well Mm -hmm. right that in our psyche we end up carrying those racist ideologies and adjusting to them in order to keep ourselves safe Mm -hmm. right and that's a burden that you can't see it's not tangible right it's not something that you can kind of hold and look at under a microscope or an x-ray right but it is pressure and it does elevate our stress levels especially when we're in those environments where we're the only yeah, because yeah. we have discussion in the office around code switching, and it's also a big um, conversation, like at brunch and everything, how we as black people, um, like you said, it's a it's a safety mechanism that we just kind of automatically know, you mm-hmm. know, especially as a black woman. I'm conscious of how I may say something in a meeting, you know, um, because I don't want to come off as angry, but... Mm. It seems like regardless of how I say it, oh, she's angry, mm. you know, <laughs> or, um, you know, just how you greet people and how you speak to people. I may greet you as a black man totally different than I may greet my, you know, white coworker, you know. Right. Um, so it's funny that you kept bringing it up because I'm like, well, some people may not even know yeah, what, yeah, <laughs> what right. code switching is. Right. But um, so getting back into it, and I think you've you've probably um, answered this a couple times over. Um, what are some issues and topics that frequently come up um, that need to be further discussed when we talk about mental health in the black community? Um, so I, I touched on it a little bit, but I can I can kind of uh, define it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Two two things I say they're they're pretty much related. Is that we we kind of live in a paradox, right? Mm-hmm. Like we. We are human, right? But we are not treated as such, right? And we haven't been since our genesis in this country, right? There's slavery, three-fifths compromise, Jim Crow, 
uh, right? There's a civil rights movement. We're, we're basically fighting for um, the, you know, basic rights that are supposed to be endowed, but they, but we're not because like we weren't considered human. There's mass incarceration. We're still saying like black lives matter, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, so we, we live in a paradox um, of being human, but not being treated as such. And so um, we have adapted to that. This is, this is one part of uh, intergenerational trauma that I think is so subtle and insidious, but very much has a powerful impact on how we've adapted to not being treated as human in this society. And I think it's such a painful experience and it's recurring, right? It's never not present. We see it in the news. We see uh, young black boys being murdered, right? We see racist things being said from the highest office in our nation, right? Mm-hmm. We see, we see, um, in so many ways, right? This ideology, this ideology that we're not human and that people don't care about our humanity, all over, right? Mm-hmm. We're constantly exposed to that. We've developed certain ways to adjust to that pain. We've we've learned how to. Uh, mitigate this impossible reality with the same strategies we use to um to navigate this recurring like second class citizenship that that we experience right um so one of the, one of those ways is that we uh going back to like allowing ourselves to feel and experience black folks are not allowed to feel pain Right. It's it's like in, in America, it's like the norm that, that we're mistreated. Right. We're told to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, take responsibility for our mobility. But despite all those efforts, like we're, we're kind of like pushed back down, right. pushed back down, pushed back down. Right. So we've kind of like adjusted to that by, I think, um, m- kind of like telling ourselves, like, we can't we can't cry about it. We've got to just push through. Mm-hmm. And we can't whine about it. We've got to just push through. Mm -hmm. We can't um, really express the magnitude of our of our pain and our experiences because we just have to push through. And um, I think sometimes we do a disservice to ourselves because we really end up invalidating our own experiences and denying just how challenging things are and i think sometimes when we get into that mind frame it becomes a dichotomy where it's just like either you're going to cry about it or you're going to boss up and do better right and the reality is like and and overcome it right and you can do both you can both allow yourself to feel what it is like to to be in pain to be hurt to deal with trauma and also at the same time do things that move you forward but a lot of times it's one or the other um we we feel like you know you just gotta you just gotta push through right Mm -hmm. that's our norm that's our status quo you just gotta push through Mm -hmm. and i it it really does do us a disservice i think we need to be able to to do both because i think when you when you kind of just say continue to push through sometimes we can inadvertently um shame ourselves for things that were never our fault to begin with sometimes we can kind of feel like we are responsible for some of the trauma and challenges to succeeding in life that aren't that aren't actually obstacles that we put in our way. Right. So I think it's okay to, to make sure that we are saying like, hey, this thing is actually really challenging. It's actually really painful. Uh, our experience as a black person uh, and, in, and as a, just an individual, right, can be challenging and hurtful and also do things that move us forward. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I also see like, um, some some like small examples of this are the way that we kind of dismiss the things that we feel uh, include like minimizing. Mm-hmm. So you know, like the older generation will be like, 
you know, y'all generation got it easy, right? right. There's nothing, um, you know, there's nothing that you guys aren't going through that we didn't go through. You know, I had to walk nine miles <laughs> in the snow barefoot right. uh, to school, right? And that's also a quip in response to a kid being tired at school. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, it sucks to walk barefoot in snow, right? And uh, this kid might be going through something at school, mm-hmm. right? And can we acknowledge both of those, right? Or um, sometimes we kind of like rationalize uh, what it is that we go through by saying like, hey, like this, you know, at work, right, as the only black person, it's really, really hard. It's really challenging. I'm feeling weighed down. But, you know, this is what it's supposed to be. Like, I'm supposed to feel this way because this means that I'm pushing forward. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, no, it's unfair that you feel that way and you're being courageous for pushing forward and and over and overcoming it right yeah. so i think for us like we've kind of dealt with this experience of not of not being human by sometimes try um disregarding our experience because it can be too painful to acknowledge it right it can be it can feel like it's too much to acknowledge it so we just kind of like push it to the side but i'd I think for us to heal, we have to kind of acknowledge all of it, acknowledge the things that are that are really, really hurtful while also moving forward Mm -hmm. and not trying to um, deny what it is that is so challenging and painful for us. Yeah. And this segues right into our next question. I left this question last. Um, um, Post-traumatic slave syndrome or PTSS. Yes. I didn't learn about this until I, until I started working in this field. I didn't know it was a thing, and I started Googling, and I was like, what is PTSS? Yeah. Um, <laughs> can you explain how this has affected the mental health of black community? Sure thing. So <clears throat> post-traumatic slave syndrome <clears throat> excuse me, is essentially um, <clears throat> describes the intergenerational trauma from um, the transatlantic uh the transatlantic um, slave era, mm-hmm. right? Um, how how that trauma was passed down through the generations, right? Um, it also speaks to kind of the absence of the opportunity to heal from that trauma, right? Because as I was saying earlier, like it's it's recurring in different forms, right? Um, there was Jim Crow, but now there's new Jim Crow and the like mass incarceration system, right? So again, it's back to that basic question of black people being treated as human, right? And us seeing ourselves being um, treated inhumanely over and over and over again. So there's lack of an opportunity to heal from it. So the intergenerational trauma continues, right? So one of the, one of the things that can be handed down is that it is really um, part of the post-traumatic slave syndrome is that it can be really, really challenging to protect the self-esteem of black folks. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times we are, re- it's, I, I, I think it is literally a rebellious act to, um, to love yourself as a black person mm-hmm. in this country, mm-hmm. right? Because of all the messages that we receive. But one of the, one of the symptoms of uh, PTSS is that there can be a vacant self-esteem where you don't feel good about yourself and it actually feels wrong to be good about yourself, right? There can be this kind of internalized racism um, where you, um, in subtle ways, dislike or dislike yourself as a black person and then also may prefer things that are white or white adjacent, right? Or majority adjacent, right? There can also be um, marked anger and violence, right um slavery was incredibly violent 
right? And there are practices that are that were handed down in order to deal with the violence. You know, one thing that is um, prevalent in the black community is corporal punishment, right? Mm-hmm. Like physical punishment for children, mm-hmm. parents. They would, um, you know, spank, beat, grab a switch, right? <clears throat> and that that has its roots back in slavery, where uh, parents would kind of, in some ways, like replicate some of the harsh punishments of the slave master to get their children to obey. Mm-hmm. And obedience has is like the number one focus in a lot of um, black households, Yeah. right? It's yeah. like the number one thing. Yeah. And back then, what it was about is like, we gotta keep you safe. Because if you don't listen to me, right, you're gonna get um, disciplined by someone who's gonna kill you. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll beat you here so you don't act out of line, so you don't get killed, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's it's continued, right? Like like I said, it, like we don't have the opportunity to heal, right? Like you hear black parents talk about concerns for their kids getting killed by the cops now. It's not the slave master now, it's the cops. So there's still um, rationale to this harsh kind of punishment. But unfortunately, um, sometimes what happens is we can kind of teach an aggression and a violence in an explicit way by acting it out or an internal way where we don't feel like we can fully express ourselves Mm -hmm. right because uh you know and that's and beating does communicate that right beating does not work corporal punishment does not work right a lot of us say like we got beaten and we're okay well you survived it right like you survived it in spite of it is what i would say and there probably are certain things that 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 have impacted you but you may not also be completely aware of them or they may not disrupt your life in large ways right but we know that beating doesn't work but this is something that we've adopted in order to survive slavery and it also kind of influences how we think about ourselves and how we might treat treat one another um, and then lastly, I, th- I think um, also in terms of how we love, um, another impact of PTSS, uh, going, going back to uh, the topic you kind of started us with, is, um, you know, our families were separated and torn apart. Yeah. Yep. You know, if you can imagine, like, having your partner just ripped from you, mm-hmm. your mother, yeah. your father, mm-hmm. right? How do you develop trust? That is um, that is the first step to uh, having a healthy relationship, having a healthy level of attachment, being in an emotionally um, functional space in relationship. Is being able to trust one another, right? So I think there can be a lot of a lot of fear in intimacy, a lot of um, trepidation about really trusting one another, right? I think there's a lot of strife in relationships in light of that. And, uh, you know, and again, these things are really like the, the to me, like the worst thing about, uh, about intergenerational trauma is that a lot of it is hard to see. Like it's kind of, it's covert. And because it's covert, like it, sometimes we, we don't know that it's there or we think it's not there. And that's like invalidating in itself because there's something happening and you can't identify it. It becomes really, really challenging. But I think uh, in terms of relationships, that can happen on very, very small levels that are hard for us to see. But in, in some of the biggest ways, it's a lack of trust and a lot of anxiety and trepidation about being intimate and vulnerable with another person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the topic of PTSS, I mean, we can talk about that all day. Like Absolutely. there's a lot that there's goes a lot into there. that. Yeah. Um, and I just tell people, if you have the opportunity to do a little research on it, please do. Um, because 
I know it helped me kind of understand, you know, how we got to a certain point as a black community as well. And it's not Mm -hmm. it's not because of us necessarily. A lot of it is systemic, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So I found that to be a very interesting discussion when we did um, when we were talking about it in one of our webinars Ujima did Mm. about Mm -hmm. PTSS. Mm -hmm. But um, that's it for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we can go on and on about black mental health. Sure. And, um, you know, we'll definitely talk about this more because I think it's something that we need to open up, open up about. Absolutely. You know, and yeah. um, the, the only question I had on here last was, you know, if you want to wrap it up, how important is mental health to our black wellness? Yeah. I mean, overall, it's it's. I think it's incredibly important. You know, wellness is about um, who we are as a whole, our overall well-being, and our mental has to be a part of that, Mm -hmm. right? Going Mm -hmm. back to how our physical health is intimately tied to our mental health. Um, And it's so important to us, um, for us, to to take care of our mental health because we are often reared not to, uh, because society and the messages that we receive tell us how unimportant we are and that is a part of how we can disregard ourselves right um when we internalize that and take that in uh so there's so many reasons why it can just go overlooked and and um and unchecked and so uh it's incredibly important for us to to keep in mind that we have a mind and we have to take care of it it's a part of us yep absolutely and um if people want to get in contact with you or learn a little more about you how can they go about doing that? absolutely so um, my website is drjshopkins.com. That's drjshopkins, H-O-P-K-I-N-S.com. That is also my Gmail, drjshopkins at Gmail. Um, and I have a Psychology Today page. Mm-hmm. If you just Google Justin S. Hopkins, um, psychologist, you'll, you'll be able to find me. Great. Great. Yeah. And um, hopefully we can add you to our resource directory. We're I would actually love to. producing a resource directory that um, has a wealth of black um, black mental health care providers, um, domestic violence um, help, you know, all types of sure. just it, it's kind of we're I wouldn't call it the green book, but we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> you yeah. know, um, well, yeah. we're now in tune with our black businesses and, you know, black wealth. So we're trying to um, promote that more about how, you know, we can connect with a lot of our um, black owned businesses and service providers. Great, great. So we'll and and this was great. I appreciate you for like providing a space, you know, yeah. for me to come and talk about this. Yeah, you know? I think it's I, I don't think we do this enough. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And now that we're in a. We're in a world where I think people are more receptive to it. Black yeah. people do want to learn more about self. Right, so right, right. I think this is very important. So, um, so I mean, if if um, our listeners want more information about Ujima, you can definitely visit our website. It's ujimacommunity.org. Um, we're also on social media, like I said, at Ujima Community. Um, that's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Ujima, U-J-I-M-A, and community. So... Other than that, that's a wrap for us. Thanks for having me. Thank you.